Hey guys, I just wanted to say before we stand for the reading of God's Word, uh, today we have a privilege uh, to hear from a uh, guest preacher, Ted Strawbridge. Uh, Ted has just uh, been named the Director of Church Planning and Renewal in our Presbytery, which is all the PCA churches in our geographical area. He also happens to be my church planning coach, so this is uh, a real special privilege for you guys to get to hear from him. He's usually the one inspiring me, and so today you get to hear from him, uh, from God's Word. Uh, Our passage today is going to be Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. If you would stand in honor of God's Word, in the Pew Bibles, that is going to be on page 2. Page 2 on the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you should find a Pew Bible somewhere nearby. We'd like for everybody to be able to see God's Word as it's being preached. Page 2, Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Genesis 2, 8 through 15. Okay. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, y'all. My wife is clearly far more intelligent than I am. She laid out a shirt for me to wear today, but I chose better than her. I like this shirt. This is my favorite shirt. The shirt that she chose, it wouldn't show that I'm nursing. I don't know what what this is. (laughs) My daughter and son left us at their house, and we couldn't find this air conditioning switch, and I'm still sweating. So (laughs) now, if you know your history... Uh, you sent Bruce Pearl and the UT basketball team down to Gainesville, and Bruce Pearl sweated through his shirt and then through his coat. You remember that? It was on national television. It was amazing. No more sweat can ever come out of a human being than Bruce Pearl. Of course, you got rid of him, but that's another story. Um, my denomination is mostly lawyers. Uh, we go to a school that teaches us how to say, where us doth thou now in chapter 7 point blah, blah, blah. And I'm so happy not to be with them. Maybe you're a lawyer, sorry. Um, But I love what I hear about what y'all are doing. I don't get to do this often, um, to really speak from the heart. So I hope this goes well for you. If it doesn't, it's all my fault, and I don't do this much, so we'll just blame it on trying. I hope this is the earthiest sermon you've ever heard, right? Uh, Let's start this way. Oh, by the way, I don't sing, right? I just imitate, so you can laugh if this doesn't go well. Ready? You know, lame is tell 
will this revel and your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were locked in here last night. You were the honored bishop's guest. And then out of Christian duty, when he learned about your plight, you maintained he made a present of this silver. And you remember what the priest says? That is right. I'm the sheriff. He's John Valjean. The priest says, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. He picks up two candlesticks. Would you leave the best be? You ready? Fine. Sorry. (laughs) So the context of the whole play is that you would never take part of something and not take the best. Right? And, and the understory is the grace of the priest who has been robbed, but in being robbed, he says to his robber, oh, you left the very best thing I would have given to you. You understand, my Christianity was built on an idea that if I placed my faith and trust in Christ alone, when I died, I got to go to heaven and be with him. And we'd be up there with all the fat babies with wings and the golden gates, and we'd worship God forever. I like worshiping God, right? But I like hitting people a lot more. And somehow the Christianity that I was born into didn't connect with a pulling guard. But I felt more alive when I was down in a three-point stance waiting to hit somebody. And even as a kid, I understood that Christ is supposed to be connected to everything, but the thing that I love to know most has nothing to do with Christ. I couldn't figure that out. You can go to any wonderful Baptist church in Trenton and hear that Jesus died for your sins. And if you put your trust and faith in him, you'll go to heaven when you die. And and it's true, right? That's not wrong. It deals with my personal moral failure, and it deals with where I'll spend eternity. The only thing it doesn't deal with is what my life is for. Like, what should I do now? I'm not really a good preacher. And I'm not really a good heavy equipment operator. But I am the world's best front-end loader preacher operator, right? What I mean by that is I love to move dirt. My father had a construction company, and life for me was sneaking out of my parents' house on Saturday morning before my dad got up and getting on some giant piece of equipment and him having to get out of the house and chase me off a front-end loader. What are you doing? I don't know, Dad. It was just here, and I stole the keys out of your desk, and look what I did. I moved that dirt, right? I still love it. Now, we have a guy in our church who's a fourth-generation road builder, and he says to me, you're not an operator. I said, well, I'm really not a preacher either, but I'm the best preacher operator that there is. (laughs) So my sisters were here this weekend. I wish they'd have been able to come. They went back because I would call on them on the spot And I would say to them, tell me about Minnesota. And even if they weren't prepared, my grandfather was a farmer in central Illinois. And uh, Minnesota for people in Illinois is like North Carolina or Tennessee for Floridians, right? It's the place you want to go. And so when he was 72 years old, my grandfather bought a cabin on a lake house in Minnesota. And when I was six years old, we used to get in a car. My little brother is 6'10 and about 400 pounds. He's a genetic mutation, right? But when we were little, we had this Cadillac that had the curved roof on the back. It was old because we were poor. And my little brother and I both would ride to Minnesota in the back window of a Cadillac. We had seven kids, 
all crammed in this car. I'm telling you, it was heaven. And when I close my eyes, right, if I think for just a minute, I can feel the pebbles under my feet. I can see my grandfather's bench. My grandfather was a hired hand. He married my grandmother, who was the daughter of the uh, great-great-granddaughter of the man who platted the whole town. So you can imagine, if you platted the whole town, you keep the very best land for yourself. So my grandmother lived on the house on the hill and looked down on all those lowly farm people. Then she fell in love with my grandfather. And he was just a hired hand. He never had nothing. They were so poor when he was 14, his family left him and moved to Kansas. He had to work for his living at 14 on a farm all by himself. I'm telling you, that man could take a paperclip and make a Ford F-250 out of it. He could do anything. And when I was a little kid, he was just like everything. Now, my family's psycho, right? He introduced me to the Stones. And I kind of see us, the Strawbridges are like Illinois Stone family, right? My grandfather was four years old when his sister said, if you put your finger down on that chopping block, I'll cut it off. And so being an arrogant four-year-old, he laid it up there. You know what she did? She cut it off. (laughs) What are these people like, right? I would see my grandfather, the chopped off end of the singer, and I think, man, I live in a house full of psycho people. Again, I'm the sixth of seven children. So when I was six, seven, and eight years old, all my heroes lived in my family. My brother played tight end at the University of Miami. And I just assumed that 80,000 people went to watch my brother play football. I was the cute little kid, the apple of their eye, along with my littler brother. But when I was eight, that made it 1968, my crazy hippie brother-in-law, who was in the Navy and had his long hair, right, goes out on the end of the dock at 6 o'clock in the morning to whistle for the loons, right? You know the sound a loon makes, right? And he's out there doing this, woo-woo, woo-woo, right? We got any eight-year-olds? Anybody eight years old in here? Somebody? Good, stand up. I want you to see. This is how big an eight-year-old is, right? Perfect. Look at you, eight years old. I was eight years old. And I woke up and saw that long-haired hippie freak out on the end of my grandfather's dock. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I could push him in. I went out the screen door. I'm telling you, I could see this like it was yesterday. I got it, but the screen door, you know, had that spring on it, you know, so I had to let it go back quiet. I was barefoot and the rocks hurt, but I made my way to the edge of the dock. Now, my grandfather made this dock by himself, so it kind of went like this, right? And I was kind of into huskies early. I've always been kind of heavy. So I had to hold on to the rail and make my way one step at a time. It was made in uh, eight-foot planks. I could count them off. I figured if I got to the last plank, that'd be as close as I could get. I got to the last plank. I ran for everything I was worth. I hit him right in the backside. Boom! Knocked him and his cigar and his pipe-smoking stuff and everything into the water. I turned around. (laughs) Now, my family would kill me, so I locked myself in a Cadillac, and I spent the whole day sitting in there watching my family at vacation, because I knew if I came out, my, brother, my brother-in-law would kill me. What I mean to say is, and this is probably, uh, if you can call it a sermon, probably a better conversation for the men than for the ladies. 
I believe God made women to be cherished, beautiful, treasured, lovely, inspiring. If you're a man standing at the plate with a 3-2 pitch, 3-2 count, and your girlfriend shows up, there's something about this next ball. You're just going to take it, Pete. There's something about God's design of a woman that makes them inspiring. There's something about God's design of a man. It may be in any kind of a thing, but I believe that God has placed in the heart of man a passion to do something significant in this world today. And the biggest struggle for me was this Christianity that I was brought into, and I'm very grateful that I was brought into it, lacked any sense of dirt. And I want to tell you this morning, if you get nothing out, God loves dirt. We had an adopted daughter, and she decided that she was going to play house. That means she decided she was going to get married. And so she convinced this wonderful boy to marry her. She played with him like a fiddle, right? She is my adopted daughter. She had lots and lots of brokenness in her life. And the day that she takes her last breath in this world, she'll be still struggling under that brokenness. But she brought this little boy into my family. I say little. He must have weighed, I don't know, 350. He was a giant kid. He was an ESE student in school. That means he was uh, special. When they put him in the special class in the eighth grade, he realized on the second day that there wasn't one teacher at that school that cared whether he came to school or not. So he never went back. They worked it out so he could work in his dad's construction company. He just didn't do books good, he said. But I'm telling you, that kid could take a pair of pliers and a socket wrench and rebuild an entire car. Now, his family's nominally Catholic. They never really go. They drop the F-bomb like it's taking a shower. So he didn't grow up very religious, and I'm trying to figure out where he is. And I said to him, Daniel, tell me about God in your life. I don't mean churchy stuff. I mean, have you ever felt like there was a God in this world? And this little kid who doesn't know books good looked at me and he said, you know, I was 16 years old and I didn't have nothing. And I talked myself into a car that didn't run. And I took that whole thing apart. And I put it back together and it still didn't run. He said, so I took it all apart a second time. And I put that thing back entirely together, 16 years old, turned the keys and it cranked up. And the thought hit my mind, somebody made me to do this. You see, with no real understanding of God, no real spiritual encouragement at all, what he knew in a moment is the thumbprint of a creator God was on his heart and somebody made him able to do that. It was one of the most painful things in my life when our daughter walked out on him. My wife said to our daughter, Jennifer, I cried more when you left Daniel than I, when, when my mother died. That's how bad it hurt. It was so much fun sitting in Troy's office with a guy that does construction stuff to ask him. I don't know him from Adam, and we're trying to have some kind of spiritual conversation. And I remember Daniel, and I just said to him, so what's your skill? What do you do? What's your craft? Troy's working on about church. I don't do church good. I go to that holiness church, but I ain't like all them religious people. 
right? I don't really like construction. I like tannery. I don't even know what tannery is. He works with leather stuff. But Troy starts to ask him about this leather working stuff. And he says, you know them baseballs? You ever been to a baseball game? I work at Rawlings. You could see him coming alive. I make the baseballs that they use in a Major League Baseball game. What I'm trying to say is, how can I say it? If you had your grandmother's silver that was passed down to your mom, and your mom gave it to you and asked you to keep it because it was maybe even your great-grandmother's silver. And I'm a Christian, but I'm poor, and so I break into your house and I steal your grandmother's silver. Now, I know you're a Christian, and I feel guilty, so I come to you and I say to you, you know, I stayed at your house, and and I knew you had your great-grandmother's silver, and I stole it, and I felt guilty, so um, here's half of your grandmother's silver back, right? The first thing you would think is, my grandmother's silver, and you grab it. What's the second thing you would think? Where's the other half? You understand, when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't come to whisk you out of this place and get you off to some cloudy other place. Jesus came to get it all back. Everything that God made and declared was good, Jesus came back to put a stamp on it and say, this is mine. Dirt matters. And in the same way that I can close my eyes and see Minnesota... Every child wandering in the wilderness heard from the time they were born. The second generation Israelites were on the move. They followed the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They moved when the cloud moved. They moved when the pillar moved. All they heard about was their nomadic movement. You understand? Where were they going? You know this, right? Where were the children wandering in the wilderness going? They're on the way to the promised land. It's what they'd heard all their life. The language of the promised land was Minnesota to me. If I'm flying up to Minnesota and my grandfather's there, I don't care about starting out in Orlando. I'm not going to tell you about the Orlando International Airport. I don't care about the airport. I'm going to see my grandfather. I cut my right arm off today if you told me that I could sit with my grandfather tonight. To hear his stories one more time would mean more to me than my house, my car. I would love to see that man again. From the time the children of Israel were born, all they heard about was the promised land. This land of Canaan that they were going to. The land between the great river Euphrates and the river of Egypt. Genesis chapter 15 tells a story, the biggest story in the history of all Israel. When Abram meets with God and God tells him to make a covenant, God tells him, in an ancient Near Eastern world, you didn't scribe a contract, you didn't cut a contract, you didn't, you didn't write a contract, you cut a covenant. What I mean is, you know, you might hit a home run, you might crush a home run, you might drive a home run, there are all kinds of words for that description. There was only one word for a contract in the ancient Near Eastern world. You cut a contract in the flesh of animals. And so Abram is wandering, and God tells him to go get some animals and tear them in two. Now, when we read that, we don't really know what that means. Every Israelite would have understood this is an ancient Near Eastern contract. The whole story 
of Israel's history begins with God telling Abram to tear these animals apart, to divide them in two. And then in the contract, the two parties would walk through this contract and they would say on oath, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? What they would really say is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, you can tear me in two like these animals. In fancy words, it's called a vassal, that's like a slave, and a suzerain treaty, a vassal suzerain slave. It's a slave and a king treaty. Now, what do you know about kings? Who rules over kings? No one. Kings, by definition, do whatever they want. So when a king said to you, we're going to make a contract, tear these animals apart, do you think the king ever walked through? No. Kings don't walk through and swear on their own bloodshed. Kings make all the rules. That's why the scripture says Abram fell into a fitful sleep because he knew he was going to bind himself to a promise with the king of the universe. Now, you remember this story in Genesis? What happens? Shocking. Abram sets it all up. He spends the whole night making the animals go away, the birds that want to come down and peck at the carcasses. And then God shows up in a smoking fire. And God himself passes through. And Abram doesn't. And God says, I swear on my own body that I will bring you home to the land between the Euphrates and the great river of Egypt. What I mean to tell you is if you were a child of Israel wandering in the desert day and night, night and day, you were weaned by your mother's breast on the idea that we're going home. And so Moses preaches this sermon that this beautiful little child read. And it says that in the beginning, God made a garden. And that garden was in between the Gihon and the Pishon and the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Sorry. That means I've been going at this for 20 minutes and y'all shouldn't have to listen to more than that. So Hutch asked me to talk to you about the kingdom of God. And all I really want to tell you is that the high king of the universe has left the thumbprint of the kingdom of God in your heart. He, he made you to do tannery he made you to be a mechanic. He made you to pick up trash. He made you to be a teacher. We're leaving Florida and we're coming up here. And most of my friends are relatively adults. But her friends are all first graders. So we get a text this morning of a first grade child. And she's covered in tears. And her mother sends this text to my wife and says, Ellie just got out of the car and I found her sobbing. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, Miss Mary Lou's leaving. And it makes my heart sad. What I mean to say is, God has made you special. Just like God made her a teacher. 
God didn't just call you to himself so that you might escape the hot place. And one day you would go to the place where fat babies with wings hover. Christian funerals are sometimes so bad, they're like pagan rituals. We say pathetic pablum. You know what pablum is? That's the stuff you feed babies. We feed pablum to people. And we say things like, oh, he's gone to a better place. And we really have no idea what that place is. You know what that place is? It's here. What we normally think about people who die is like the Orlando airport if I'm on my way to see my grandfather. The goal of the Bible is that you will come to the new heavens and the new earth. And every time you use that word, there's a word in Greek or Hebrew that means new like just born yesterday. That's not the word new heavens, new earth. The word new heavens, new earth, every time is something that's been refreshed. Jesus didn't say, behold, I make all new things. What did he say? Behold, I make all things new again. What we should be saying to people at funerals, when you come to the new heavens and the new earth, it'll be this place. It'll be these streets, these houses, these rows. Somehow the work of our hands will pass through a purifying fire. It does pass through. But when we get there, the work that we do will be reflected in the new heavens and the new earth. And so you can say, you know the biggest thing about death that's fearful is nobody knows where we're going or what it's going to be like. Yes, we do! It's here. It's my house. When the high king Jesus comes back to take this earth over, you understand the story of the Bible is not creation, fall, redemption. It's creation, fall, redemption, and glory. Jesus came to make this whole world what God intended it to be from the beginning. And so this whole world is going to be where we get when the, what did Hutch say? When the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea, it's this earth. And so the high king Jesus is going to come back and he's going to throw, around, throw his arm around my friend Tommy Craggs. And he's going to say, you remember when you gave all the equipment of your company to Ted? And he took your stuff and went out there and made a soccer field? You remember watching him hit that rock and the steering wheel nearly cut his stomach in two because he's so dumb he has no idea what he's doing? Tell me about the little children that got to play on that soccer field that you guys made. Because that was so much fun for me to watch. What I'm asking you is what's your tannery? Right? What's the thing that you do? And when you do it, you feel the pleasure of the high king. What's Daniel putting a car back together? And when he turns that key and it turns over, something inside him says, little boy, this is what I made you for. There's lots of people out there in Trenton that don't think they're much. They don't have much. They can't do much. Every single one of them has something in their heart that is the thumbprint of God. They're just waiting for it to be drawn out. Won't you pray with me?
Father, I thank you for these dear folks, for their kindness in inviting us up here. I know that I'm crazy. I know that this may sound wacky. I know it took me a long, long time to begin to get comfortable with what we do and say. Lord, won't you uh, touch them, encourage them. For the family that lost a loved one today, won't you give them a certainty that that lost person one day be invited to the kingdom of heaven? That we now can bind our hearts together and trust that if we place our faith and trust in Christ alone, we not only get heaven, we get all this too. The story of the Bible is that one day God comes back and the glory that He made in this little garden spreads throughout the whole earth. And even a place like Trenton is a joy to His Creator. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.